Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice. Believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to start off with Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott. This is troubling, shall we say, to say the very least. The headline of my daily rant today over at Hartman Report, DeSantis and Abbott, will they be held responsible for mass dying of adults and children? Right now, we're seeing hospitals filling up across Florida, across Texas, and across all the states in between. And the pillars basically holding up either side of the South here, this uh, anti-democratic, anti-Biden, pro-Trump, pro-death South, are Texas and Florida, DeSantis, or Florida and Texas, DeSantis and, and, and Abbott, respectively. And I'm hypothesizing here that they've gone all in on a high stakes bet. And the example of Donald Trump indicates that they may well win it. And that's my question. My main question to you today is, will they win this bet? Uh, By the way, on the on the op ed over at Hartman Report, uh, we've uh, enabled comments at the at the very bottom of the article where uh, if you're a a full subscriber to the the Hartman Report, you can comment. It, It it keeps out. You know, the upside is it keeps out trolls and spammers, um, you know, because it's only subscribers. So, uh, and I'm checking it every half hour or so, and I'm, I've replied to a couple of people's comments already. But here's the question. You know, are they going to get away with this? Killing thousands of their own citizens, tens of thousands of their own citizens, and the childrens of those citizens. Killing, perhaps, too strong a word. Let's say letting die. But it's not just benign neglect. I mean, they're actually taking forceful, using the force of law, using police with guns, using the power of the law to say to teachers and school administrators and parents, you will not have a safe environment in your schools. And the reason why? Because we're all following Donald Trump and his anti-mask thing that he started back in 2020 because he was afraid that if people wore masks and social distanced and stayed home, the economy would go soft and he'd lose the election. I mean, let's keep in mind where this all began, right? But this is their bet that, you know, Donald Trump, had he, according to this study from Brookings, there was another study from The Lancet, the British Medical Journal, uh, Deborah Burks laid this out on national television. I've got a hot link to that in my article at Harbin Report. Um, she just, you know, she just says it out loud. 400,000 Americans would not be dead if Donald Trump had simply done what, for example, Trudeau did in Canada. Everybody has to wear a mask. Everybody has to social distance. If he had just done that, 400,000 dead Americans. But you look around at the Republican Party. Is anybody blaming Trump for their dead relatives? Apparently not. And this is the bet that DeSantis and and Abbott are making right now is they're saying, you know, we're going to let a whole bunch of we're going to cause a whole bunch of people to die. 
and including children, by the way, the Delta variant doesn't seem to discriminate. It's no longer the boomer remover. It's now killing everybody and sickening everybody. And the bet that they're making in Florida and Texas, and, and, you know, and then you've got the sheeple govern, you know, governors all in between, with the exception of John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, who's a Democrat, all these other governors, the, the bet that they're making is that the COVID pandemic or epidemic in, in those southern states is going to play out the way that diseases typically do. We, you know, and that is that you know, the disease comes in, it's new, it whacks a bunch of people, so you have a spike in, in sickness and deaths, and then it spreads so far and wide that people either die or they become immune as a consequence of having had the disease, and the slope of the infection starts going back down again. We saw this with the bubonic plague in Europe. It came in waves. We saw this with, you know, also known as the Black Death. Um, we, saw this, we saw this with the flu in 1918. We see it with the flu every year in America. When we were kids, when I was a kid anyway, we saw it with chicken pox, mumps, and measles. This is, you know, before the vaccines. We saw it in the era of George Washington with smallpox. It comes in waves. Hell, Edgar Allan Poe, there was a typhoid epidemic going on in New York City. He fled to northern New York, and he came back two years later when it had passed. So DeSantis and Abbott are figuring, okay, eventually enough people are going to get sick in our states. They've got, you know, some, something like 30 million people in, 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 um, in those two states that have already been infected. We're going to get enough people infected that we will achieve herd immunity, and the numbers will start going back down again, and we can claim victory. And by the way, people will forget that we had anything to do with this death and disease. And, and they've got several examples of Republicans who have pulled this off in the past. George W. Bush, we were talking yesterday with Spencer Ackerman about his book, uh, Reign of Terror, about after, you know, after 9-11. And he said, you know, George Bush, George W. Bush, after 9-11, the Taliban, Mullah Omar, the head of the Taliban in Afghanistan, said, we will arrest Osama bin Laden and hand him over to you. And Bush said, oh, no, I'd rather have a war. That's going to get me reelected in 2004, being a wartime president. And he started bombing the poorest country on earth, well, the second poorest country behind Burkina Faso, uh, the second poorest country on earth with an average annual income of $700 a year. That's how poor Afghanistan was. Bomb them back to the Stone Age? No, they were already there. And then he lied us, you know, the next year he lied us into a war in Iraq. And our people sitting around going, hey, you know, George W. Bush, he killed over a million people in the Middle East and killed thousands and thousands of American soldiers. We should think poorly of him. No, the Republicans love George W. Bush. So it's not like there isn't precedent for Republicans getting away with this. Now, Democrats, not so much. Right? People, people, you know, LBJ lied us into the Vietnam War. <laughs> we all know that, and, and we hate him for that, or at least that part of him. I mean, he did great stuff with a great society, but the Vietnam War, that was, a, that was a war crime. And how do we know? Because the Vietnam Memorial. It's got those 50-some-odd thousand names etched into it. You walk by that memorial in Washington, D.C., and it's a gut punch. I've been there a couple of times. It's an, I have friends on that wall. It's an absolute gut punch. I guarantee you, there will be no such memorial with the names of the people that just like right in your face to the 600,000 people who have died in the United States, 400,000 of them at least as the direct result of Donald Trump's, I was going to say incompetence, I would say malice. So, you know, Republicans have a long history of getting away with this kind of thing, with killing Americans or, you know, taking, lying to us and, and, you know, being incompetent and killing Americans and just, you know, dancing away. Trump's followers still love Trump. They're not sitting around going, oh, you know, my friend Ralph died of this thing. He didn't have to die. No, they don't. They probably don't even know it because they live in such a, a well-insulated media bubble. And now it's hitting kids. 
the uh, Agence France Press reporting from Philadelphia about a, a child, 10-year-old child. His symptoms were debilitating, pain in his legs so bad he couldn't walk anymore, gastrointestinal distress and nausea so severe he had to lie in bed, unable, unable to navigate the stairs. This is a healthy 10-year-old. Unable to navigate stairs, he crawled instead. When he got well enough to go to school months later, at school, basic math equations and completing homework assignments became enormously challenging for the usually A student. He describes it as a kind of confusion because he couldn't grasp basic things that he'd normally find easy to deal with. This is called long COVID. It's hitting our children with this Delta variant. The National Institutes of Health on their website at NIH.gov, quote, Almost half of children who contract COVID-19 may have lasting symptoms which should factor into decisions on reopening schools. Evidence from the first study of long COVID in children suggests that more than half of children aged between 6 and 16 years old who contract the virus have at least one symptom lasting more than 120 days, with 42.6% impaired by these systems, symptoms during ongoing daily activities. Meanwhile, Carrie Elleveld over at uh, Daily Kos writes, what can protect these children, however, is universal in-school masking for students and staff. It's been studied by Duke University researchers who tracked COVID-19 transmission in North Carolina K-12 schools across 100 school districts, 14 charter schools, 160,549 school staffers, and more than 864,000 students attending in-school instruction. Dr. Kinesia Zimmerman said, we've learned a few things for certain. This is an associate professor of pediatrics at Duke, Duke School of Medicine. Although vaccination is the best way to prevent COVID-19, universal masking is a close second. And with masking in place, in-school learning is safe and more effective than remote instruction, regardless of community rates of infection. But what do the headlines say? Well, down in Florida, the New York Post, COVID-19 cases among kids overwhelm Florida hospitals. The Daytona Beach News Journal, Florida sets COVID hospitalization records again, including highest in nation for children. In Texas, Channel 5, Dallas, full-on surge. Tarrant County leaders worry about children's health hospital capacity. CNN, baby girl with COVID-19 airlifted 150 miles because of Houston hospital bed shortage. So my question, are DeSantis and Abbott going to be able to get away with this? DeSantis just this morning doubled down. I'm going to defy President Biden. Really? You know, I would never bet that a Republican can't get away with mass killing. This is the Tom Hartman program. Or something awful close to murder. It, it just, you know, it's a, it's a terrible bet. Republicans just seem to skate on this stuff. What do you think? John in uh, Alawa, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. Uh, thanks for taking my call, Tom. Uh, you're doing a great job. Um, my only thought is that, and I wish no harm to anybody, but if these governors of uh, Florida and Texas are so committed to this no mask mandate, why don't they send their children into the COVID wards unmasked, unvaccinated, and bring them on a picnic there? I wonder, do you know if DeSantis or uh, Abbott have children or grandchildren? Abbott's a little older. He's He's pushing 70, I think. But DeSantis is well, in his 50s. I think um, I think he's referenced that he has had children yeah. uh, or has children, but maybe they're children, maybe they're grandchildren or relatives. I mean, Ted Cruz is out here ranting about this stuff. In fact, last night he was ranting about it on TV, how it's tyranny to require masks. Ted Cruz is sending his kids to a private children's school that charges $20,000 a year, more or less, and requires masks on all the children. That's Ted Cruz's children are protected, but he doesn't want anybody else's children protected. So pardon the interruption, John. No, no, that's fine. I, um, that was all I really wanted to say, but it just really infuriates me that um, these people can be so... Um, I'm searching for the words, but loss of a better word. Hypocritical? 
murderous? (laughs) Any of those and the acronyms that follow along with them. I just really can't believe that society has changed so much that we have this complete idiocracy and the people that believe in this stuff. When I when I grew up, my dad said, you know, if you're not telling me the truth, you're lying. Right. And I, I just, um, it just really infuriates me. And I thank you, Tom, for your work. I've been watching you ever since Brunch with Bernie. Um, I think you're doing a wonderful job, and I just wish people would uh, wake up, to use that term. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thanks for your kind words, and thank thanks you, for watching Free Speech TV. Sharon in Tucson, Arizona, watching YouTube. Hey, Sharon, what's up? Yes, good morning. Uh, I was just listening to the news this morning. And it appears that Trump is keeping control by, I have no idea why this is, hang in there, to turn off the sound. Yeah, it's always a good idea. Whenever you call in, you want to turn off your sound and listen to your phone. Uh, Anyhow, go ahead, Sean, Sharon. Okay. This morning, the early, early news, we have DeSantis now going into collusion with Trump with the vaccine he was given when he was taken to Walter Reed. You mean the, uh, not the vaccine, but the uh, monoclonal antibodies, the, the remedy? Yes. Those actually work if you get them early enough. You've got to get them before your symptoms get really bad. And that's the problem because, you know, doctors and hospitals, because it's, it's like an hour-long infusion. You know, you got to put a thing into the vein and let it drip, drip, drip. And, and mm-hmm. doctors and hospitals are, you know, when somebody comes in who's not really deadly sick, they're like, you're not really deadly sick. Go someplace else. We're full. And that would be the moment to give them the infusion to keep them from getting deadly sick. So it's, a, it's, a, it's one of these weird catch-22s. Well, that's what's being pushed by DeSantis now. Well, how can hospitals do infusions when they when they can't when their their ER rooms are overfilling into their cafeterias? I mean, that's that's crazy. Sharon, thank you. You're thinking logically. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a curse. It's a curse. Sharon, thank you for the call. Tom Hartman here with you. So some parents are pushing back on this. Two lawsuits were filed this morning against Ron DeSantis in Florida. The Florida Constitution requires, and I quote from the Florida Constitution, a uniform, efficient, safe, secure, and high-quality system of public schools. Notice the word safe in there. You've got parent groups that are representing parents in uh, Alachua, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, Hillsborough, Miami-Dade, Orange, Palm Beach, and Pinellas counties, who are suing the governor saying, you are failing to provide our children with safe schools. The state, by the way, broke uh, another record yesterday with 21,683 new cases of the virus. And as I, by the way, did I mention the children's hospitals all across Florida, well, all across the South, are full. All the hospitals are full. Some of them are on the verge of breaking down. Rachel Maddow on her show last night on MSNBC just did a deep dive into Mississippi. Their hospitals are four or five days away from just collapsing. Because these governors are just all, you know, hey, we're going to do like Donald Trump. We're just going to let people die and figure nobody is going to ever blame us. Republicans can get away with this, don't you know? George W. Bush lied us into two wars. Nobody's pissed at him. If anything, people are sitting around going, oh, no, the Taliban is taking over Afghanistan. Like the Taliban used to run Afghanistan. We shouldn't have gone in there. We shouldn't have messed with their, with their you know, they, 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 these people call themselves freedom fighters. Why? Because they're evicting foreigners from their country. Now, I'm no fan of the Taliban. But I'm telling you, Republicans get away with making insanely stupid decisions that lead to the deaths of millions of people, including tens of thousands or thousands of Americans. And in the case of Trump and the COVID, 400,000 unnecessary deaths According to the Lancet, according uh, according to multiple, according to Deborah Burks, who worked in the White House, she comes on national television 
and says 400,000 people died who didn't have to die all because of Donald Trump, because of the way he responded, because he refused to have a national mask mandate and social distancing. And here we are again. So my question, are DeSantis and Abbott and all the governors in between going to get away with this? Or is history going to record them as the Stalins of their time? Stalin let millions die from famine. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. But whether you die from famine like with Stalin or whether you die, 400,000 people die from a deadly disease like with Trump, you're still dead. Are they going to get away with it? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Today we're reading from Our Women on the Ground, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world. And this is from the introduction by Sahafia. When I first visited Raqqa Hassan's Facebook page in 2014, I think it's Raqqa Hassan, in 2014, I was struck by her profile photo. The Syrian woman had paired a black hijab with a figure hugging top that was embroidered with gold sequins. Her eyebrows were impeccably groomed and bronzer contoured her cheekbones. It was a daring look, considering that she lived in Raqqa, the northern Syrian city that was, at the time, controlled by the most brutal Islamist group in the world. Most striking, though, was the defiant expression on Rakia's face, a defiance reflected in each one of her Facebook posts. Everything about the petite woman screamed, I am here and I will not be silenced. Rakia was a Sahafia, a woman journalist, who secretly reported on the crimes of ISIS from inside Raqqa. But she was no ordinary reporter, at least by mainstream media standards. The 31-year-old of Kurdish descent wasn't employed by a major news outlet. She never had a byline or a dateline and was never trained to cover warfare. She hadn't conducted any interviews, and she certainly wasn't impartial. She participated in anti-government protests and openly criticized Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. Online, Rakia was fearless, even though vocal opponents of ISIS were often swiftly executed. The citizens Sahafia wrote in chilling detail under a pen name, Nisan Ibrahim, about the atrocities the group was waging on the people of Raqqa. She shared her reports on Facebook, sometimes posting several times a day. As Rakia amassed a large social media following, her friends advised her to take down the photos of herself that were viewable to the public to protect her identity, but she refused. A philosophy graduate at the University of Aleppo, Rakia was known for the personal, poetic, and somber tone of her social media posts, which were always written in Arabic. She wavered between reporting what she'd witnessed and writing about how she felt. In December 2014, less than a year after ISIS declared Raqqa the capital of its caliphate, she posted the following. In Syria, life and dignity have become two parallel lines that never meet. Rakia mostly referred to ISIS as Daesh, the acronym for al-Dawa al-Islaya, 
uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Greater Syria, which has reportedly drawn the ire of some ISIS commanders as it strips the terror group's label of its reference to Islam. Daesh has closed all internet cafes in the countryside and most likely in the city too, the citizen Sahafia wrote in June 2015. Without the internet, we will lose our only way of communicating. Dear God, emigration is a loss of dignity and a form of humiliation while staying here is hell. Dear God, where should we go? What Rakia presented in her harrowing posts was an authentic account of the events unraveling on the ground in Raqqa. Those accounts came at a time when few Westerners could report from within Syria, but they nonetheless commanded the international journalistic narrative on the country from afar. One of Rakia's final posts on Facebook was also her most unsettling. I'm in Raqqa and I've received death threats, she wrote on July 20th, 2015. When ISIS soldiers arrest me and kill me, it will be okay, because while they will cut off my head, I'll still have dignity, which is better than living in humiliation. Shortly after that post, Rakia was abducted by ISIS and never heard from again. In January 2016, her brother received confirmation from the terror group that she had been murdered along with five other women. At the time of this writing, Rakia's body has not been returned to her family. Well before Rakia was killed, I wondered what her story was. Why did she turn to writing and citizen journalism, despite knowing that death would be a very likely outcome of her outspokenness? Why did she choose the pen name Nisan, which means April in Arabic? How did she reconcile the identity she presented online with what was expected of her at home or by the society she lived in? Much like Rakia, scores of women in or from the Arab world and broader Middle East have quietly and courageously risked their lives to write about the coming apart of their region. These women are fierce reporters who have helped shape the narratives of perhaps the most important moments in their homeland's modern history, a time of failed revolutions and violent warfare, widespread political and social upheaval, and the worst refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. And yet, despite their access, expertise, and the obstacles they must overcome in order to do their jobs, they haven't received as much attention as their Western and often white male peers. Our Women on the Ground, this book, presents intimate and rarely heard accounts of what it's like for a woman to report on a region she hails from. The stories of the 19 Sahafiat, whose essays make up this collection, are crucial not only because they have contributed to our understanding of what is transpiring in some of the most dangerous countries and protracted conflicts in the world, but also because they intrepidly crush stereotypes of what it means to be an Arab or Middle Eastern woman today, especially in the era of U.S. President Donald Trump, the rise of populism, and the far right in Europe and elsewhere, and ISIS. Arab women are often misunderstood on multiple levels and by multiple groups. On one hand, an Arab woman may be victimized or pitied by outsiders who think her to be submissive, oppressed, or subjugated. She's occasionally boxed into one identity, whereby, for example, her Arab identity is incorrectly conflated with a Muslim one, and she is frequently exoticized or superficially celebrated. On the other hand, an outspoken Arab woman is sometimes deemed improper or an anomaly by both outsiders and the society around her. Professionally, she might be considered less of a threat than her male peers or not taken seriously, and she is sometimes actively silenced or passively unheard. This anthology is, in part, an effort to disrupt such flimsy stereotypes. The Sahafiat come from different generations, faiths, and nationalities, reflecting the diversity of an entire region. They are writers, reporters, broadcast journalists, and photojournalists. Our Women on the Ground is the book. Okay, welcome back. I, I just, this is uh, Susan J. Demas. I'm assuming it's pronounced Demas. I don't know Susan. She publishes her own uh, kind of website, her own, uh, here we go, susanjdemas.com is the website. And she's also publishing this uh, newsletter. It's called Inside Michigan Politics, her own publication. And she wrote a piece that was in michiganadvance.com that I think just captures the zeitgeist perfectly, you know, the spirit of the times. It crystallizes it. And it was just so brilliant. I want to give her complete credit for it and share little bits of it with you. She says, saying America has had enough. Those of us who have tried to do everything right have no more Fs left to give. 
anti-vaxxers, COVID conspiracy theorists, and right-wing politicians have made the pandemic far more hellacious than it ever needed to be. We've been lectured endlessly by pundits and attention seekers on social media that we, must have, we mustn't ever make them feel bad about their awful choices. No matter how many public violent scenes they cause over health rules, heavily armed protests they organize to intimidate us, or how much the t death's toll soars. Their feelings have been deemed more important than the health and well-being of our families. Nope, she says, knuckle-draggers do not deserve veto, veto power over our safety. And then she goes on, if you refuse to get vaccinated, and this goes double if you're someone with a platform to influence others, you are to blame for the fourth wave. You are the reason why more children are being hospitalized. So spare me your family values bloviation. You are why good people have done their part and gotten their shots are getting breakthrough cases. I'm tired of sugarcoating it. The 40% who can't bother to get jabbed are why life continues to be hell for the rest of us. Let's stop denying the obvious. She goes on to say that, that, that's also threatening our economic recovery. And like clockwork, grandstanding dimwits in the Michigan legislature are now debating Republican legislation outlawing vaccine passports. She is so right. Susan J. D-E-M-A-S. Susan J. D-E-M-A-S. Demas, I'm assuming, uh, .com is her website. And, it's, and she's, I mean, I've got a new writer that I'm following. <laughs> Writers got to stick together, right? And uh, this is just, this is so real. I mean, it's like we, we are hearing constantly from right-wing snowflakes that we are interfering with their freedom by asking people to wear masks. Really? I think George Takei, Takei said it uh, just absolutely brilliantly this morning. You know, he, he, he said... If you're, bra I'm paraphrasing from memory here, he, he said words to the effect of, if you're bragging about not being vaccinated, don't bother. That's like bragging about being a drunk driver. You're not a patriot, you're a menace. And he's absolutely right. And that's what we need to be saying to these fools. You're not a patriot, you are a menace. You're, and, and here we go. Uh, again, from the writing, the newsletter, this is for today's, today's writing. Uh, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G dot com, thewriting.com. Uh, the most effective, this is from InfoWars, the most highly educated Americans are also the most vaccine hesitant. It's a, it's a lie, of course. Uh, uh, the, this one from uh, Western Journal. Government and media need to stop lying about COVID. Today, when I hear a government representative telling me something, my default position is to assume that he is wrong. He could be intentionally lying because he craves more power, which is a rush for liberals who work for the government, or he may simply be incompetent. See, we're back to Reaganism again. Oh, the government, you can't trust the government. Front page. Dems and COVID restrictions forever. Thanks to Big Mother, members of Congress have to have a face mask. Followed by an impeached Joe Biden. Yes, let's impeach him for trying to protect us. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Susan is over it. I'm over it. I think we're all over it. Enough already with these fools about masks and vaccines. It's time to stay healthy. Harmon here with you. Boy, what a day, huh? So much going on and so much to talk about. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hey, Pam. Yes, hi. First, I want to say I'm glad Cuomo resigned. That was the appropriate thing to do. Yep. And I didn't think he would withstand impeachment and everything else that was going on. Tom, regarding Senator Cinema. Mm-hmm. I heard her interview and her explanations as to why she doesn't want to blow up the filibuster. And uh, I try to listen to people, Tom, when they, you know, talk or interview. So you can really get a, a feel, you know, what's the r real answer and how to persuade them. So I don't know if you're familiar with any of her interviews. She said that the filibuster was an institution. So that says to me that she's not really educated on the history of the filibuster. So maybe right. that's one point. 
But the other, she said that she was looking long term. She was concerned that the Republicans would become the majority party and that they might overturn any voting rights laws. Yeah, I heard that interview last weekend. Right. Or they might overturn any uh, laws pertaining to gay and, um, uh, you know, the LGBT. Right. Right. And she was concerned about that. Long term. She said looking long term. So I thought about Tom. What about the here and now? We're dealing with the present. And right now you have these restrictive laws that are just out and out racist. So I thought we might appeal to the LGBT community and ask them to apply some pressure on her regarding this issue, because there are a lot of black, you know, gay people, transgender people, and that community might be able to apply some pressure on her that she might understand, because certainly, you know, the restrictive voting would impact those of her own community. And I, I just thought that might be a solution that might help apply pressure. Pam? Because if not, Tom, yes. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. I thought you were done. I was just going to ask, if we don't do that, then that means that we will not get voter, you know, the uh, voter rights legislation, Joe, uh, excuse me, um, John Lewis, and that the, the, the uh, representatives from Texas who are fighting tooth and nail, they've done that for nothing. Yeah. And, and this is a, a critical crisis, and we've already missed a deadline here because the census data is coming out in a week or so. And once it does, the red states, the Republican states, or the Republican-controlled states, many of them purple states like Wisconsin, um, they're going to start their gerrymandering process, and they're probably going to nail down at least a half a dozen more Republican seats uh, where it doesn't matter basically how people vote. You're going to get a Republican in the House of Representatives, and it's going to make it much more difficult for there to be a Democratic majority. And we really needed to have blown up the the filibuster long before now. Her argument, uh, both of her arguments are completely specious. They're complete nonsense. Uh, You know, her argument about the filibuster being, you know, uh, an institution that's part of American history. Well, yeah, you know, as as a way of defending slavery. I mean, that's where it started in 1836 with John C. Calhoun. And and right up until 1965, the filibuster was never used for anything except to block civil rights legislation. Um, so, you know, A, you're absolutely right. She doesn't know her history. But B, this thing about, oh, well, we shouldn't do this now because if we do, Republicans will do something else later. That is completely circular logic. It's completely nonsense. And, and, it, and it discounts the idea of democracy. In a democracy, the majority wins. And yeah, the majority yeah. is sometimes going to do things that you all don't like, you know, that, that none of us like, that, that are stupid. And that's one of the ways that we learn. <laughs> we try things out, they blow up in our face, and we say, oh, that didn't work, let's try something else. Um, it, that's not a reason to not do anything. It's not a reason to say, oh, we're going to sit here and, and sniffle and suffer in paralysis. And the Republicans sure. will figure out ways around things anyway. You know, Trump wanted his tax cuts for his billionaires. He got it through reconciliation. Um, you know, the Democrats are going to pass this three and a half trillion dollar, God willing, you know, and knock wood, uh, you know, with through reconciliation. I think what's really going on, Pam, is that yeah. is that uh, Kirsten Cinema, in all probability, as is the case with most people who are members of the so-called Problem Solvers Caucus, which you know came out of the No Labels group, which came out of a bunch of Wall Street billionaires, is on the take. And it's perfectly legal because the Supreme Court legalized it. And, you know, somebody is feathering her nest really, really well. And, uh, you know, she's not she she, she doesn't want to back away from that. Uh, but the, the and, and that's my sentiment, Tom. But let me ask. So which one of our uh, Democratic senators is having that real heart to heart discussion with her behind the scenes? Oh, it's got to be Chuck anyone, You know, you know, are they really just coming to her hard hitting and telling her the truth about herself, as we would say in the community? There you go. Because, you know, because they use all of their power for bad. They don't care if they break institutional norms, whatever norms, break laws. And we won't use all of our power for good. Yeah. And that has to stop on the Democratic side. That has to stop. I agree. Right now, this is the moment where we're going to find out if this strategy can work. President Biden is going to, in all probability, come out in support of the three and a half trillion dollar bill. 
And he's also going to support the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives, if everything I'm reading is accurate. We'll find out, but I would be very surprised if it doesn't play out this way. He's going to support the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives who are saying, we will not vote on the $1 trillion bill that Kristen Sinema is staking her reputation as a legislator on, and Joe Manchin as well. Now, you know, yes, we can compromise with Republicans. We will not vote on that $1 trillion bill unless we can also at the same time vote on the $3.5 trillion bill. It's not going to get out of the House unless they both get out of the House, and it's not going to get past the Senate unless they can both get past the Senate, and the President of the United States is endorsing that. And what that means is that Kirsten Sinema is going to get what she wants with the $1 trillion bill, which has got a lot of Republican goodies in it and a lot of goodies sure. in it for the, for the really, really rich powerful interests that are probably funding her campaign and, and will fund her lifestyle after she gets kicked out in 2024, um, number one. and But number two, so she's going to get what she wants, but she's going to have to give progressives what they want in exchange for that. And you know, this is going to be a very delicate... Yeah, it's going to be a very delicate dance, and it's going to require the progressives in the House of Representatives to absolutely hold the line, to absolutely say, this is it, we are drawing the line right here. And if they can do that, and if they hold that, then, you know, I, I, I'm, very, I'm actually optimistic about this. Um, so we'll see. What? But Pam, I, I think I believe they will. Tom, thank you. I, thank you, Pam. I, I and I think if anybody needs to be talking to her, it needs to be Chuck Schumer because he's basically the he's the guy who doles out you know things like committee seats and, and he has the carrots and the sticks. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today? The ugly American. Oh uh, yeah, yes. I, you know, I've always been. Uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm probably anal about manners, uh, to be perfectly honest. Uh, my background, the way I was raised, that's just something very important to me. And so I, I say that because the caveat is I'm, maybe I'm hypersensitive to this stuff. But I got to tell you, uh, I am definitely seeing uh, an increase uh, of rudeness. And, you know, rudeness became fashionable in the U.S. Uh, some time ago. I can't tell you exactly when, but for instance, you, you, you may recall that uh, uh, the U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan some years ago uh, urinating on uh, dead uh, Afghan uh, soldiers or Taliban members. Um, and and uh, the venue where I live, we see uh, young men, they call, I guess it's called sagging, their underwear hanging out. Uh, we've had a rash of freeway shootings here in Southern California. And I think that one of the things that has exacerbated this time was the lockdown. When you take mm -hmm. a, a, a society of uh, mostly illiterate people and lock them up for a year uh, and then lose them all at one time, you're bound to have problems. And I've, I've said to my children, you know, be very careful about going out right now. Let the dust settle a little bit because everybody's anxious. And Donald Trump, definitely this stuff trickled down from him. You know, ironically, I had to get a windshield, not windshield, but a side window replaced on my vehicle time about two weeks ago. And when I got to the shop, there was a Mercedes there that had a Donald Trump-like, uh, a figure of him, like a cartoon figure, on the back windshield. And every one of these windows had been busted out by a brick. Side windows, front Whoa. window, Ouch. back window. You, you know, and even though, hey, look, I'm no fan of Agent Orange, as you know, still, when we get to the point in the country where people are taking things out at this level, on inanimate objects, I think we're in trouble. Yeah, but right. I'm definitely seeing seeing a lot of that. Well, and I and you're prescient here, Kenyatta. 9/11 uh, was a turning point for America because George W. Bush's response to 9/11 was to identify a them for us. We had a new them. Exactly. You know, it had been a long time since we had a them. It used to be the communists. But now we had a new them, and it was Muslims. And it was okay to trash Muslims. It was all okay to trash talk them. It was okay to set their mosques on fire. And it was certainly okay to go to some other part of the world where most of the Muslims had brown skin and bomb the crap out of them. And, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that I think that that was a turning point in a whole bunch of different levels. And then we pulled back from that with the Obama presidency, where, you know, for eight years it was like, oh, well, maybe we can live together. But we never really repudiated that. 
and, well, and, then, and, and then Trump gave license to everybody with his of races. Of course. Listen, and, and, and think about the language he would use as a president. He'd be at a rally and all these expletives would come out of right. his mouth. You know, people talk about January 6th. That insurrection was all about rudeness. It was rudeness on steroids. And right before, and I don't know if you heard it, but his son, I forget which one of them, he was using the foulest language yeah. before those people marched to the Capitol. Yeah, that was you Donnie can Jr. Imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, so, I mean, so, and, and, and then there's this whole element of, of uh, you know, American, mostly white American society that celebrates that, you know? Yeah, he yep. tells it like it is. No, he doesn't. Yep. He's an ass. <laughs> well, now I'm doing it. I'm, you know, see, there, there you go. It's contagious. I, it's, <laughs> Kenyatta, good talking to you. I'll see you later. Yeah, thanks so much for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I can't believe I just offered a great example of my own thing that you should never do. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe it. We'll be back with your calls right after this. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ari in Eureka, California. Ari, you are on the air. Thanks for uh, listening to us on the Tom Hartman app. Hi, Tom. Yes, people are getting ruder. I'm getting ruder. I own a little retail shop, and people who don't wear their mask properly, I'm sorry. They can either pull it up over their nose or they can leave. I also have a really good rule of thumb when to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Anytime you feel it necessary to wear pants, you should wear your mask. <laughs> I love it. It's yeah, it's just kind of an extension, and then there's that whole let your nose hang out thing. Is you know, just imagine men with their underwear like that, and it's like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, I get yeah. it. I totally get it. Are you getting uh, in your little retail shop? Are you getting blowback? Have you had threats? Has it been a problem, or is Eureka, uh, you know, enough of a progressive neighborhood community that uh, people are going along with it? Well, most of our regular customers thank us for being so careful, mm -hmm. but some of the people from, I'm in a, an area where tourists would yeah. come to my shop, and tourists from places where there is no masking are very upset that they can't, right now I'm, I'm closed for in-store shopping, I only have front counter service, mm -hmm. and um, they're very upset they can't come in and touch everything. They're very upset that I make them wear a mask or that I make them wear a real mask instead of their stupid gator that does nothing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to get sick. I'm not, not going to get my staff sick. I'm not going to get my other customers sick. Yeah. Bless you, Ari. That is... Uh... <laughs> That is great. Thank you for the call, and thanks for sharing your story with us. I do appreciate it. Grant in Ventura, California. Hey, Grant, what's on your mind today? Perfect timing, Tom. I would love our ad. 
I want to share a tag you're at with you. Okay. Because Nurses for Social Responsibility is running an ad in our local newspaper, and we're urging other nurses across the country to do the same. And it says this, bragging you won't wear a mask is like bragging you drive drunk, you smoke in restaurants, or you won't buy a car seat for your four-year-old. All we have to say to you is this, stop bragging and hanging out naked in front of us. We don't want to see your COVID nose or mouth. Save lives and put on your clothes and wear a mask. Brought to you by Nurses for Social Responsibility. That's brilliant, Grant. That, you know, it's, I wonder if that's where uh, George Takai got the idea, uh, you know, for his tweet this morning, which was along the same lines, you know, saying that you're unvaccinated is like saying that you're a drunk driver. You're not a patriot. You're a menace. Well, you know, I'm a retired nurse, and I think people are starting to get it, Tom. That's good. That wearing a mask will protect you Mm -hmm. in part from this disease. And, of course, getting vaccinated. That's our way out of this problem. Yeah. And I urge everyone to get vaccinated. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, Grant. And uh, even even if you've had COVID, get vaccinated because I was just looking this Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah, the vaccine. And get your booster, especially if you're a senior citizen. Yeah. Amen. Well, we've got to get the boosters authorized. I, I will uh, I will line up the minute I can get one. Uh, without having to lie about it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's a really difficult decision. <laughs> Grant, thank you for the call. It's great. Bravo. Yeah, have a good one. And uh, welcome back. Picking up your calls, Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's up? Hello, uh, Tom. Unfortunately, you know, this is something that I learned from, you know, during the Rick Scott times. That you know, Florida, you can't recall any statewide officials. Oh, really? Under statute, Florida statute 100, yeah, 100.361. It says only the statute, the way it's formulated, Florida statute 100.361, is that any member of the governing body of a municipality or charter county, you know, including Miami-Dade County, which is a charter county, just so you know, here and after referred to in the section as municipality, may be removed from office by the electors of the municipality, meaning that no statewide official is subject to this recall. So unlike California, we don't have that recall applied to statewide officials. So the governor can never be recalled under our current constitution. Wow. But, but yeah, but our local mayor famously in 2011, Carlos Alvarez, um, he was the mayor who helped to you know support the Miami Marlins Stadium, which was seen as you know very controversial around that time. So, anyways, there was a big, you know, big uh, millionaire Norman Bremen who helped fund the recall effort to kick him out of office, and then that's how we got Carlos Jimenez, who you might know as our as one of our local congressmen. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, up being That's very interesting. Alejandro, thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, and now we just have to figure out what the, what's the deal with Texas, and we'll have it all nailed down. <laughs> you uh, you uh, so often know exactly, you know, you know the law, and I, I do appreciate that. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, Karen in New Orleans. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind today? Yes, um, about the filibuster. Hmm? These Democrats that don't want to blow it up, uh, because what the Republicans may do in the future are not really looking clearly in the future, because a minute that Mitch McConnell gets control, he's going to blow up the filibuster. Oh, when, when something that is important to him comes along, he's already demonstrated that. Well, he did that with the Supreme Court, with Brett Kavanaugh. Well, There's no way that he, Kavanaugh could get two-thirds of the, of the Senate. He did it with the Supreme Court, and he will do it the second he gets in. I agree. Just blow it up and pass everything he likes. I agree. And I, repeal everything he don't like. Yeah. I, so if they don't do it now, we lose the voting. But Mitch will do it. Yeah, yeah. And and that that's why I'm saying when Kirsten Cinema goes on these, you know, long, bloviating, excuse-filled rants about how, you know, we've, we, we can't, we can't uh, blow up the filibuster because then Republicans might do something terrible in the future. I'm sorry. Republicans are doing something terrible right now, every day, and, constantly. And, and this is the result of not teaching civics in school. Kristen Cinema yeah. didn't learn civics, apparently. Well, I think she's just using the convenient lie that was being handed to her by the people, you know, by the people who 
hold the leash right. that's around her neck. Uh, right, but if she knew civics like uh, we did in our day, um, she would know what the filibuster really is about. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Bill Bennett did some real serious damage to America when he blew mm -hmm. up, you know, the teaching of civics in America. Uh, yep, yep, yep. And that's the problem with the voting now. Yeah, I'm These with young you. people don't understand civics. I'm with They you. don't care about the midterms. I, I, I totally get it. Karen, thank you. Thank you for the call. Today, we're reading about Thunderdome politics, an uncivil war taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics by Greg Sargent, the Washington Post columnist. This is from his chapter on voter suppression. It's page 37. Republicans and Democrats inhabit different political realities, as mentioned in a previous chapter. But there are certain facts about our politics that are just objectively true. One of them is this. Generally speaking, efforts to make it harder to vote are almost always pushed by Republicans. You cannot understand what is happening in American politics right now without recognizing this stark and very fundamental difference between the two major political parties. During this decade, procedural hurdles were put into place in around 20 states that in some manner or other have made it harder to vote or to register to vote or have undone previous efforts to make voting or registering easier or have otherwise threatened serious disenfranchisement. Most of them were the creation of Republican lawmakers and officials. The difference in the two parties' national platforms for 2016 tells the story. The GOP platform champions additional hurdles that are absurdly disproportionate to the phantom abuse it alleges, while the Democratic platform champions multiple specific ways to make it easier to vote, not harder. The most common and controversial of methods used by Republicans to suppress Democratic turnout is the requirement that would-be voters present identification at the polls. The game here tends to turn on requiring forms of ID that some groups are less likely to have, making participation harder for them. Other restrictions include techniques like cutting back on early voting and making it harder to register, both of which have, in recent years, been instituted in multiple states. Republicans who have passed laws making it harder to vote have tended to claim such measures are necessary to protect against, quote, voter fraud. We'll look at this in more detail below, but for now, Note that most of the states that have passed such measures did so while under Republican control. As New York University political scientist Samuel Isikoff has memorably put it, the single predictor necessary to determine whether a state will impose voter access restrictions is whether Republicans control the ballot access process. Scholars trace the modern era of warfare over election rules to the intensely contested presidential election of 2000 in which a divided Supreme Court halted the recount in Florida, throwing the presidency to George W. Bush. The closeness and partisan acrimony of that contest, combined with the intense national focus on election rules that accompany the court battle over it, helped persuade both parties to invest much more attention and energy on those rules. As a result, both the implementation of measures restricting the ballot and the legal battles over them have intensified in recent years. A brief glance at the surprising history of voter ID laws begins to tell the story of this tightening. In the 1970s, several states implemented voter ID measures, but all of them provided for ways that voters without the proper ID could cast a ballot. By 2000, there were 14 such laws, and they had been implemented by politicians in both parties. But by the mid-2000s, amid rising post-2000 acrimony, a handful of red states began implementing voter ID laws that the nonpartisan National Conference of State Legislatures described as, quote, strict, meaning that they make it easy to disqualify those who don't pass muster. After one of those laws in Indiana was challenged and then upheld in 2008 by the Supreme Court, an escalation began that gained momentum in the Obama era. From 2010 onward, the adoption of voter ID laws in general and of strict ones in particular accelerated. Though a handful were blocked in the courts, as of this writing, a total of 34 states have voter ID laws in effect, 24 that are deemed non-strict, and 10 that are deemed strict. The strict ones are in red states or in swing states where they were implemented by Republicans. The story is very similar if you evaluate the state's voting rules in a broader way, by including not just voter ID measures, but also cutbacks to early voting and restrictions on registration. Here the trend is just as pronounced. After the 2010 elections, the Brennan Center for Justice documented a sharp rise in efforts to pass such measures in the state legislatures across the country. Not all these efforts bore fruit, but many did. By the time voting took place in Election Day 2016, some 14 states had these new restrictions in place, 
for the first time in a presidential election. This narrative contains some important truths. Some of the forms that these restrictions on voting access have taken in recent years are diabolically obvious in their efforts to keep constituencies supportive of Democrats from voting. Still others boast the distinction of being more insidiously designed and thus less obvious in their intentions. The book is An Uncivil War by Greg Sargent of The Washington Post. Julie in Posen, Michigan. Hey, Julie, your thoughts? Hi. You know, I wear a mask when I go into stores. And a couple of times I've gotten not-so-nice comments from people. Really? And I usually just, yeah, I just ignore them. Uh-huh. The last time I was in the grocery store, and it was pretty full. Well, for up here, there was like seven people in line. And this guy made this a co- comment to me right behind me. And I turned and looked straight at him. I said, you know what? This is not just a mask. It's an IQ test. <laughs> Everybody in the store started cracking up. This guy turned beet red. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Julie, you win the creativity award for the day. <laughs> it made me feel so much better. <laughs> that, that is absolutely great. In fact, Julie, I want to send you a copy of my new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. It, it'll be out in a couple of weeks, but we've got a box of them here. And if you would like, I'll put you on hold and uh, Joyce can get your address and everything. I would love that. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Across California, school food professionals are using their skills to develop recipes that incorporate fresher ingredients and more scratch cooking. Learn how they're cooking up change at schoolfoodpros.org. Grant provided by California Community College's Chancellor's Office.